Someone reminded me uh, a few months ago that November is the month that we moved into the building that you're now sitting in. Some of you, this is the only college church you've ever known. We've actually been in five or six different sites all the way from Boot Street over here to the ad building uh, over there. And uh, each time we've moved as a church, the identity of the church has shifted a little bit. You can feel it. But when we moved into this building here on the scene of a Christian university and South Marion, something happened to our mission. Something happened to us as a church. We began to attract and disciple people that were not used to coming to a place like College Church. We became less a chaplain to a university and more a place of outreach for our community, and I celebrate that as one. So uh, in the last month, I've spent time talking to our church staff about the mission of our church, and this being a time when we made a major shift in our mission, I want to spend the balance of the morning talking to you, the members and the friends, the people who attend College Church, reminding you and reminding us what our mission as a church really is. I won't say anything profound this morning. I won't tear the text apart, but I will say things that I think God has uh, just really put heavy on my heart, and I'm still trying to figure these things out. You'll help me, I know. In my conversation with the staff, I was reminded of a parable that Haddon Robinson passed away just this last July, shared. And while I can't do quite the job he did, the guy was a genius when he did it, I would like to try and retell that parable and then give you a chance to process it. According to uh, Haddon, he said he was driving with his daughter through the state of Colorado when they came to a little road at the base of the Rockies, and they went up the road, and there into the woods off on the left was a little cafe called the Church of God in Christ Chicken Restaurant. (laughs) It's a nice little building that is packed full every Sunday and every Wednesday, most of the time at lunchtime. They give you a buzzer, and with that buzzer, you can walk around the grounds and look at other buildings while you wait for your table to clear. Directly behind the cafe is a small chapel, and if you step inside the chapel there, you can hear uh, gospel music being played, and then they'll play the tape of a preacher exhorting people to live according to the gospel. Across that little path is a large metal building. Inside of it is a huge portrait with lights shining on it. And as you step into the metal building, you hear different narrations, stories, and scenes from the life of Jesus. You walk down the path a little bit further, and there is a playground called the New Jerusalem. (laughs) It's kind of fashioned after the old Jerusalem. And while the children are wandering through Pilate's Hall or Herod's Temple, their moms and dads will hold on to the buzzer and wait for the table to clear so they can get a seat a little bit further down the path It's called the Garden of Memories, probably not unlike the garden Jesus himself prayed in a couple thousand years ago. 
Well, when Haddon and his daughter checked into the restaurant, it was a pretty thin crowd. It was the middle of the afternoon. They got right to the table, and because there was margin, they asked the waitress the history of the name. She said it used to be a church. It was 55, 60 people, 75 to 80 maybe on some days, but it had two signature marks, she said. They had an old preacher whom she called a Bible man, just got up and talked about the Bible. And then they were great at fellowship. They loved one another. And the way they celebrated this was every fifth Sunday of the month or four times a year, they would clear out the grounds and have a church potluck. And if you've never been to a small church potluck, you have not lived. I think God has embedded the best cooks in the world in tiny churches. So they'd drag out their favorite recipes and they would put on the spread and the attendance would go from about 55 or 60 up to about 120 or 30 on those days. People from the community with no interest in church would start coming and sit through the service and then they would enjoy the potluck and Reverend Getz, he was at his best on the fifth. It's like he worked extra in order to make that a really good day and so the elders had a meeting. They said, if we're doing this well once every quarter, what if we had a potluck once a month? Well, who could argue with this? Because people from the community were coming, the attendance was getting higher, gets was a little better on those days. People did get to use their spiritual gifts and so... The elders voted they go to once a month and nobody resisted. And almost immediately the attendance shot up to about 150 or 60. So the elders had another meeting. <laughs> and this time they said, if we can do this one time a month, what if we had a potluck every single week? We should bring this before the congregation. And so they did. And when the congregation heard it, almost nobody thought it was a bad idea. I say almost because there were the cooks <laughs> who were responsible for putting the food out there every single week. They kind of resisted. And so the board says, we can change that. We'll actually buy the food. You won't have to bring it. We'll pay the cooks. So you don't have to get another job. We'll recruit new volunteers. They'll set up the tables. We can run this like them. And that's exactly what they did. And the congregation shot from about 150 or so to over 200 consistently every single week. People from the community with no interest in church started coming for the service and then for the potluck. And then the elders had another meeting and they decided that what with cooks waiting in the kitchen and the food getting cold and the guys waiting to set up the tables every week we should take a full-length service and squeeze it if we could into 45 or 50 minutes they said we won't take anything out that seems critical but we need to get the traffic moving and this they did and now with a big full-scale potluck and a compressed service, the church went crazy. Even more people came until they were well over 300 every week. 
And then the elders had a meeting and they said, you know, the problem with growth is that it brings complexity. And the problem with complexity is that it always undermines growth. We need a consultant. So they drove into Denver and they found a consultant to come out to this little church and spend a couple days and this was the sum of his report. He said, you have to keep doing what made you successful. But what got you here won't get you there. You'll have to make some changes. First, you'll have to buy more property so you can increase the parking so more people can come and find a decent place to park. And second, you'll have to improve the building. You'll have to make more space and make it more modern. No one wants to come out here and sit in a shed for 45 to 50 minutes. And third, you'll probably have to do something about Reverend Getz. <laughs> While he is a dear old saint who likes to preach the Bible, he is not a visionary. He's not a good administrator. He's certainly not an entrepreneur. And so with these recommendations that church bought more property, they went into a full-scale building program and they bid farewell to Reverend Getz. About a year after that, a woman in the church died and left an estate of four and a half million dollars. <laughs> And the elders said, a sign from God that he is in this project. So they paid off the new building. They paid the new parking. They had a large portrait painted that they hung in an old metal building. Her name on a plaque outside. This new entrepreneur had amazing ideas. He said, we can take a 50-minute service and make it 30 minutes. We won't take anything out. We'll just get right to the point. And we can make a digital church. He said, people can eat their chicken dinners at home while they watch a DVD. And we can expand the number of services to Mondays and Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. And before we knew it, the old elders that used to make decisions about the ministry of the church were relied on less and less. Now they said more business minds were needed. And so they brought in the business minds and leaders from the community. They took a 30-minute service and eliminated it altogether. And in its place, they built a chapel out back where you can hear gospel music and an old preacher's voice. When the old people in the church complained that it was not the way that it was before, they said, there's a large metal building just down the shed where you can go in and look at a portrait of Jesus and hear eloquent narrations of his life. You'll see we're still the same church. They canceled the children's ministry, and in its place, they built a playground called the New Jerusalem, where children could make new friends while their parents waited with a buzzer in their hands. And now that the church was making more money, 
through the restaurant than through the offerings. It became, she said, the Church of God in Christ chicken restaurant. Sixty seconds. I'm going to give you sixty seconds. Are you in? Turn to the person next to you and tell them where in the process did the church of God in Christ change? Was it all the way back when they went to once a month or maybe once a week? Or was it later when they shortened the services? Maybe you'll say, no, no, it's when they let go of the ministers. And some would say, no, it's when they replaced the board. Where in the process did they cross the line? You have 60 seconds. Go. Well, do you have that figured out? <laughs> I bet you we've got it all over the spectrum this morning, don't we? Some of you are all the way back at the beginning and others maybe closer to the end. You know, as I step back and I listen to Haddon Robinson tell that parable again this week, what struck me, you guys, is that there are no lines, at least none that you see when you cross them. There are no villains, there are no shadowy figures in the back trying to change or sabotage the mission of that church. Everyone has good hearts, everyone has good ideas, all of the ideas are spoken of in missional terms, so they're harder to ignore. But very gradually over time, another idea arises in that church, something I'm calling a pseudo-mission. The word pseudo might be new to some of you. It's an old word that literally means false or artificial. And so when something is a pseudo-mission, it's a false or an artificial mission that comes alongside the real mission and starts to siphon energy away from it. When it first comes along, it appears to be more convenient, certainly easier, more doable in this lifetime. It's often more glamorous, more popular, or trendy. It's often more urgent. It comes alongside the mission and starts to siphon energy off of it. As I look at missions throughout the Bible and ask myself, when God gives us a mission as a person or as a church, how do we know? 
The same characteristics almost always apply. One, it's almost always original. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't come from the other people that I'm hanging around. It's not a hodgepodge of ideas that I'm putting together into some conglomerate idea. It doesn't grow out of my own deficiencies. It originates from someone outside of me. It may not always be glamorous. It may not seem extraordinary. It may not be novel. In any way, but it does not originate with me. I could never have come up with that, too. It's almost always outrageous. I don't mean it's crazy. I mean it's bigger than something I could do. It will require the work of God to come alongside. I will need other people to speak into it, to coach me and counsel me. In order to do it, I will need favor as much as I need hard work and innovation. And third, whenever I succeed, God will become more famous. Not me, not us, not my kids, not my idea. It will be God who is famous. And me... I'll just slip to the background and move out of sight. But when something becomes a pseudo-mission, it has almost the opposite effect. It originates in me. It often grows out of a deficiency of Steve trying to prove himself. Prove somebody wrong or prove the superiority of his movement or himself or his idea. And because it originates with me, I can do it. It needs hard work, it needs a good education, and it needs a lot of good ideas. And I got to hire smart people, but it needs more work than favor. It needs more creativity than miracles. And three, whenever I do it, I look really, really good. Now, all the while, this pseudo-mission grows up next to the mission. And can I make that clear? Pseudo-missions almost never formally compete with missions. They simply grow up alongside them. And they take away more energy and time and conversation. And while it is doing this, I will insist that my mission is still what I said it was. But since my mission is never what I say it is, my true mission, whatever I say, is the sum of what I worry about, think about, budget for, what frustrates me when it doesn't happen. My habits are the routines of my true mission, whatever I say my mission is.
Some years ago, I was called at the age of 17 or 18 years old to preach the gospel. That was it. It's not glamorous, I know. And I may not even be that good at it, but that's what I was called to do. But born as I was an introvert with extremely shy tendencies and born with a problem of stuttering in almost every sentence I spoke, it is surely not something I would have chosen. It's true that my father was a minister, but that was a reason not to be one. I was going to be a bad sequel, and I knew it. It was an outrageous idea. In order for me to do it, I would have to stop habits that I could not stop and learn things that I couldn't learn, get over things I couldn't get over. But every time I did it, God got a lot of credit, especially from people who knew me. They would look and go, you? (laughs) God is amazing. (laughs) Somewhere in my 30s, I started to get better. And when I did, everything started to shift. Only I never noticed. Somewhere in the night, quietly, imperceptibly, and long before I caught it, a pseudo-mission came up alongside of the mission. And somehow, preach the gospel became be a great preacher. Those are not the same thing. God can speak through bad preachers in powerful ways. And so every time I would pour myself into sermon preparation, all of the people around me would say, oh, that's amazing, man. He's doing exactly what he's called to do. That's why he worries about transitions and the rate of distribution, the law of diminishing interest. He is pouring himself in to preaching the gospel to get Obstacles out of the way. It looked like the mission. But the pseudo-mission was popularity, recognition, affirmation, greatness, notoriety. And I didn't see it for a long time. Until one day I was walking across the lawn in North Lakeport some years ago after a really bad morning. And the second service was over and I couldn't put two sentences in front of one another without stumbling all over myself. And as I walked across that lawn, my arms were flailing at the end of the day. And I started talking to the Lord right out loud. And I remember saying, why on earth do I continue to do this? And I I think I heard the Lord say, you were doing exactly what I told you to do. Didn't you hear the people 15 minutes ago as they walked out the door telling about the work that I was doing in their life? Steve, didn't you hear that? You are being successful. And I remember in the middle of this conversation, arms flailing, just screaming out, man, I wish success felt better than this. 
And when I said it, I heard it. Somehow the mission to preach the gospel had become the mission, be a great preacher. And that's where all my time and energy was being poured into. And I made a decision there in that lawn that I would not serve a pseudo mission. few years later it came back again I had to fight it again and a few years later it came back again these things never grow away man they just keep growing it requires vigilance to focus on the thing that God has called us to be and not something more gratifying and popular and trendy at the time that feels better I finally decided in the last bout that I had with this, that my mission is not to be a great communicator. You can see I'm succeeding wildly at that. My mission is to communicate great things, period. That's it. However badly or well you say it. Say great things. Talk about great truths. 60 seconds. 60 seconds. It'll be more quiet this time. I'm going to have you in a moment turn to the person next to you and say, this could be my pseudo-mission. To set you up for this, think of it like this. When you went into the waters of baptism and they baptized you, remember when you came out, the vision that you had for the Christian life? You remember when you brought your children onto the platform and you dedicated them to the Lord and you said, these are your kids. Do you remember as a parent what you wanted for those kids? Do you remember when God told you to go into the career or the discipline that you're either in or you signed up for in college? Do you remember how inadequate you felt? It wasn't just your passions. You wanted to do something great for God. But it's possible that somewhere in your late 20s or early 30s, that mission has shifted to become notoriety. Maybe if you're a parent, the mission has shifted from raising boys and girls who love Jesus to having a nice, comfortable environment in my home. Maybe if you're in your 40s, your mission has shifted from serving Jesus Christ to building my reputation. Maybe in your 50s and 60s, the pseudo-mission is a good and happy retirement. What did you used to be called to? And what is your pseudo-mission? 60 seconds. Go.
Well, church, the text that we just heard read a few moments ago, I believe, is the mission of God, not only for our church, but for you as individuals. The first half of that mission goes like this. Our mission is to make more and better disciples. Jesus said, I am the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you will produce fruit. Please pay attention to your place in this thing. You are the branches. You're not divine. The vine creates life while the branches create fruit. But the purpose of the branch is to connect the fruit to the vine. If we forget that as a church or as an individual, we'll start thinking that we're making disciples in our own name. We'll think that our job is to build our brand, to make somebody famous, to reproduce ourselves in somebody else. That is not our mission. Our mission is to connect people to the life on the vine. Jesus said, just as the Father gives life to the dead, so does the Son give life to whomever he is pleased to give it. He said, the day is coming and has now come when the dead who hear the voice of the Son of God will hear it and live. Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have my life. He said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life. Our role as Christians is to connect people to the life that is in the vine. Unless we do this, the disciples will not last. The work that we give ourselves to will fade away as soon as we are gone unless it is infused with the life of the vine. In my earlier years, I would lead six or seven to people to Christ in a week. And they would drop away. And every consultant told me, your problem is that you don't have a discipleship program. No. My problem was not that they weren't attached to a discipleship program. My problem is that they were not attached to the vine. They were attached to me, but they were not attached 
to the vine. And I cannot give somebody life. It is not within me. I can only pass the life on from the vine on to the fruit. I am the branch. I am not the vine. If you ever forget this, you will go and build monuments in your own name. God forbid. Which leads to the second and last big observation. Jesus said, when I remain the branch, if I keep my position in this thing, then I have to remain connected to the vine. And if I remain connected to Jesus Christ, then I will produce fruit. Quick word of explanation. In the Gospel of John, remain is a continual theme. And it means union. Jesus said, just as I am in the Father and you are in me, so I am in you. I still believe it's one of the least translated verses in the entire New Testament. That thing goes all the way down to the mariner's trench, and we're a foot deep on this. What he said was, you will be as interconnected to my personality as I am interconnected to the Father's personality, so that when you remain in me, they will not be able to tell where your personality ends and my personality begins. He says, if you live in this way with devotion and depth and loyalty, then you will produce fruit. When John talks about reproducing fruit, he's talking about increasing the number of people that I influence and increasing the level of influence that I have with those people. Are you tracking me? So what I'm seeing in the church right now is two different emphases. One is an emphasis on spiritual formation and another is an emphasis on community development. Both movements have come in the church in the last 20 to 30 years. The spiritual formation movement is the Eugene Petersons, the Henry Nowens, the, the uh, uh, Dallas Willards, and the John Ortbergs who talk in incredible terms about remaining in Christ and being connected to him with spiritual depth. But at the same time, another movement has come into the church that is led by people like John Perkins or Wayne Gordon or Noel Castellanos or others who talk about bringing the church into the city and into the community about becoming an outreach station so people who don't know Jesus can find Jesus in the ministries of the church. And I don't think anyone intended this, but these two emphases in the church at the same time has caused almost a veering toward one or the other so that the better we get at spiritual formation, the blinder we become to bearing more fruit. And the more we think about bearing more fruit, the less we think about remaining in the vine. If you take someone like me, and my default is to remain and remain and remain, and you let me interpret bearing fruit 
I will always interpret that as virtue. Because I'm good at that. But I will not interpret that as making more disciples. I just make better. And this has been the problem in so many old churches like College Church. The older we get, the more entrenched we become in making better disciples. And so, lo and behold, in the last 20 to 30 years, we've seen the church start planting like crazy. And it's a breath of fresh air. We are reaching people we couldn't have touched before with the gospel. But may I say that the people we are reaching must be connected to the vine, not the church. They have to remain in him, not the founding pastor. I tend to underestimate the urgency of making more disciples. They tend to underestimate the depth of what it means to remain. For me, more just means virtue. And for them, better just means you come to church or you're part of a small group. Come on now. We all know you can come to church and be part of a small group and not truly remain in the vine. Is this true? As long as I'm our pastor... we will make this mistake. So you could leave and go to another church. But if you do, you might make another one. saying this to you, but I'm saying it to people right now that are watching. It is better for you to stay in the church you're in and strengthen the other side. Because if I'm interpreting this verse right, what Jesus says is this is one continuous motion. When you remain, you will produce fruit. And when you produce fruit, I'll prune it so you remain even stronger. In fact, he said, if you don't remain, you can't bear fruit. But he also said, if you don't bear fruit, I'll cut you off. So if I hear him right, he's saying, if you don't remain, you can't bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, You can't remain. I won't let you. So we have to get serious about bearing more fruit. Here's how I suggest we do it. First, some of you, like me, 
live inside of a city. My city's called College Church. I'm the mayor. I'm digging this, man. I can't do anything, but I'm the mayor. Some of you live in another city called Taylor University. See, now we're preaching. Some of you live in another city called Indiana Wesleyan University. And if you let yourself, you will move inside of your city and you will get stronger and deeper and better at things that make you better. But you'll become more and more removed from people who need Jesus. If you let yourself, you will not be part of civic debates or civic politics. You will not be part of the public schools or the courts or the business community. You will just live inside of your city as a moated community. So what we need is some of you in the congregation who are more on this side of things to reach into us, beginning with me, and say, Steve, you and the leadership got to get out more. Because if you leave me in my city, I will just have amazing thoughts. But listen closely to me. Those of you formally educated in amazing thoughts, as much, yeah, we're in trouble, well, way off script now. <laughs> there is a pathology of intellect. Amazing thoughts will get septic if we don't release them onto people who need Jesus. The reason we have amazing thoughts is to make more disciples who reproduce themselves. The point was never our careers. That's a pseudo-mission. If you leave us to ourselves, our pseudo-mission will be spirituality. But if you leave them to themselves, the pseudo-mission will be church growth. So I need some of you to pull us out in the community with opportunities. I can't do all of them. I can't chase every person who says I need you to speak at this or sit on this. But I just need to be more active. And so does the leadership in our church. And if some of you are like me, insulated inside of your city, you'll need to join me in this movement to get out more into the community. Are you in? Second, if you're already out in the community, you've crossed the moat, then I need you to say the name of Jesus in places where it has not been said before. I know that you live lives of, of, of no reproach. I know that you have stellar testimonies. And I know that you, I know some of you like to say, you know, my, my motto is uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, guess what? You haven't used words in years. 
That's why you like that statement, man, because you think people will just watch your life and come to Jesus, and they don't even know why you're that way. So you'll probably at some point use to articulate it in words that make sense of the claims of the gospel. If God has put you in pivotal positions all over Grant County, then he is asking you to take the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring them to bear on those places. He's asking you to say, how would this place be different if I unleashed the gospel? You say, man, I don't know if we can even do that by law. It is always lawful to treat people well. It's always okay to elevate people and pray with people and listen to people. Those are some of the claims of the gospel and we will just have to become more aggressive. The Son of Man did not come to hang out. So it's not just a matter of how many lost people you're hanging out with. Have you ever told them about Jesus? Have you ever said, this is what I was until he found me, and this is what he did for me, and this is how I'm different, and this is what I think of him, and this is his name? Have you told them? <laughs>